Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A great and glorious Father, we give you thanks and praise that in this world of darkness you have indeed given us your word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we pray that as we come and read your word together as we study your word together, that you would uh, enlighten our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would reveal the dark crevices of our sin that lies within, but also the hope of Jesus Christ, which is found in the light of the world. We pray that you would be with us, work in our hearts through the Spirit, that as he draws us unto yourself, that you would receive all glory and honor, that we would seek to be able to praise you, that you would teach us your rules, that we might be able to teach others. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior's precious name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 3. We'll be focusing on verses 1 to 12 this morning. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Take, please take heed how you hear. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush has not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out the, the land that is good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jesuitites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our Lord will stand forever. 
It was just a normal day for Moses. The shepherd, so he thought, before as the sun had risen, over the dusty horizon he was up, counting his sheep without falling asleep, watching over his father's-in-law's flock. This is what he'd done for about 40 years or so. He'd become a part of the priest of Midian's family. His wife, Zipporah, had given birth to two boys, Gershom and Eliezer. He'd been rescued from the sword of Pharaoh after that day where he tried to hide the body in the sand. And now he was a foreigner in this land. At about 80 years old, and I'm sure this is what he thought he would spend the rest and the remainder of his life doing, tending flocks, raising his two children. He probably taught them about the God of his father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he just probably thought this was how he would live out the remainder of his days, wandering in the wilderness. He was right to some degree. Over the last 40 years, he'd roamed around this area and this region many times across this mountain. Little did he know how important this mountain would become to the people of Israel, to his people. Little did he know how important this mountain would become to him in a turning point in his life. Little did he know the day that he woke up that morning that he was going to meet God. This mountain would be the place where the people who were once enslaved will see the glory of God. They will hear the voice of the God who hears them. They will know the God of the God who knows them. So what do we see in this verse? The first thing that we see is the Lord appears in verses 1 to 6. Verse 2 is such an important and critical points in the timeline of the Bible. What I mean by that is that this event has not happened for hundreds of years. For over 400 years, the Lord has not spoken to his people. Silence. We saw last week that he still is working, he still is listening, he still, is, he still knows his people. But yet, he has not spoken to his people directly. The last thing that we have recorded is when the Lord speaks to Israel and Jacob, as he tells him in Genesis chapter 46, to be able to go down into Egypt. That God would deliver him. He would bring Israel back up. Now, four centuries later, the Lord appears to Moses who will be the man who brings Israel, the nation, up out of Egypt. In Genesis, we see the Lord appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord tells Abraham in Genesis 12, giving him a promise that he would give those the offspring that he did not have at that point, this great and glorious promised land. And what Abraham does is he goes down into Egypt. And the Lord rescues Abraham and Sarah by sending plagues on Pharaoh's household. And Abraham ends up leaving Egypt with great possessions. In Genesis chapter 26, the Lord appears to Isaac 
and tells him not to go down into Egypt, but to remain in the promised land. And there the Lord blesses him. Then in Genesis chapter 35, the Lord appears to Jacob, and he renames him from Jacob to Israel. And he promises that he will make him a great and glorious nation. He will give his offspring a land to w- in which they will dwell. You fast forward a few chapters just mentioned before, and the Lord tells e- Israel to be able to go down into Egypt. God voluntarily condescends into his creation, and he makes promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And after 400 years, this is what the Lord does again to Moses. Now often when we think about this passage of verses chapter 3 and 4, we, we summarize this as the burning bush incident. This is what comes to mind. Well, the author of Scripture, Moses, does not spend a lot of time speaking of the burning bush. After 400 years, the Lord appears to Moses. There's this flame of fire coming out of the midst of the bush. That a burning bush is not consumed. But again, the important part of this passage is not so much the burning bush. It's a conversation that happens between Moses and God. How the words that God says, the promises that God makes. The New Testament actually calls this the passage about the bush. Now we could go down into a rabbit hole. I think I'm rabbit hole prone in my personality to speak about theophanies, Christophanies, angelology, you know, briefly. What about this instance? I think this is the theophany, an appearing of God through physical means. That this is the triune God, the one who redeems the people out, uh, people of God from slavery. See this throughout Exodus, but is repeated in Isaiah chapter 63. One of the main reasons I think a lot of these are theophanies, not Christophanies, is that I really struggle to be able to understand what it means to be able to have a pre-incarnate Christ. I think a great book on this subject is Vaughn Porthrus's book called Theophany. And he has a helpful appendix at the end there about what does it mean when the Old Testament says the, the angel of the Lord. Is it merely a messenger of the Lord? Is it Christ, pre-incarnate Christ uh, speaking, or is it a theophany? I think it's a great passage. If you you're, have questions about it, then I encourage you to go read that appendix, if not that whole book. But here, the bush is before Moses, and Moses is intrigued by this burning bush that is not consumed. So he changes directions to be able to have a closer look. Stephen says that Moses was amazed at the sight. Finally, after centuries of the Lord not speaking, the Lord speaks. Moses hears the voice of the Lord. Moses responds when the Lord calls out his name. Twice he says, here I am. The Lord tells him he has to take his sandals off 
because a place he is standing is holy ground. Now again, we see another important principle here that we will see as we continue through the book of Exodus. But here you see a great and glorious thing that a holy, the holy Lord reveals himself to a sinful creature. But that does not then change and make this creature not sinful. They are still sinful, and God is still holy. But we see an important principle, but the sinful creature is not able to enter the holy God's presence in the way in which they come, just as they are. This is the holy place in Exodus. It is not because of a geographical location, but it is the holy place because the holy God dwells there. In this geographical sphere, there the Lord dwells. And that is what makes it holy. The holy place will move and shift as the Lord moves and shifts with his people. We see that Moses is unable to enter without direct command from God. More than that, we see God introduce himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I also think he introduces himself as the God of Aram, Moses' father. He does not say that I am the God of your fathers, but the God of your father. Again, I think an important principle that we see here in this time, that the people of Israel are still true worshipers of God, dwelling in the world, but not of the world. We'll see this in coming weeks as well, but there's great theological implications that were pointed out in gospel accounts that God does not introduce him as the God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he is still their God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Even more than that, God is not ashamed to be able to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 11. What a great and glorious truth as we think about the sinful men entering into God's presence. God does not disown his people because of their sin. Read through the accounts in Genesis. These men lied. They're not great husbands. They failed their bride. Abraham didn't trust God, could give him a child through Sarah, so he went in through, he, he just tried to make his way through other means. Isaac, just as his father did, lied about Rebekah being his wife, putting her in great danger. And then there's Jacob. The one who dressed up in goatskin to pretend to his blind father that he was his brother Esau so he can get the blessing. And yet the holy God still identifies with these people and says, these are my people and I am their God. But even notice Moses understands this holiness of God. God tells him to remove his sandals, but what does then Moses do? He hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. Moses goes from amazement about this burning bush to be able to turn his face away to cover his face. 
This is the response of the seraphim. These perfect creatures, not, they have no sin. They're made to be able to stand in God's presence, holy presence. But yet they're made with wings to be able to cover their eyes as they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How much more as Moses, the son of Adam, the sinful man, covers his face. God will tell Moses that no one has ever seen his face and lived. How often do we have this approach and reaction as we draw near to God? Evangelical theology says that God is merely a person we talk to. A man just like one of us. However, as we see and look throughout the whole Bible, any reaction of anyone who comes face to face with God in some theophany has reverent worship towards Him. Anyone who even comes in close contact with a heavenly being is afraid and fearful of death. They fall on their knees in dread and terror of this heavenly being. The author of Hebrews says that we should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The truth of the gospel is, the gospel does not change God. That He becomes less holy God is unchangeable. But the truth about the gospel is the gospel changes us that we might be able to enter into his presence and worship him. That we can approach the throne of grace. Worship has shifted over many years. But even in 1963, A.W. Tozer is the year he died, but he said that he'd noticed a change in songs. He said a lot of the songs that were written in that time had shifted from thou art to I am songs. Him shifted from being about who God is and what he has done to being about us. We have made God like the man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz, who speaks in a booming voice, but really in reality he's a small and powerless man. But again, the gospel does not change who God is. It does not make God less holy that we can then approach him because he has made himself less holy. The God of the gospel is not less holy, less powerful, less mighty, or sovereign than the God in which encountered Moses. The gospel changes us so that we might be able to stand in the presence of this holy, powerful, mighty, sovereign God, the one who made the heavens and the earth in the space of six days with the power of his words, the one who showed the world his holiness through the worldwide flood during the days of Noah. And as we see, God changes his people to be able to worship him. That we might be able to worship him in his way, 
And as we see, the people who get to understand who God is, as He has revealed Himself through Scripture, come with grateful hearts and adoration because we enter in the name through Jesus Christ. That we become holy like God because of what Christ has done for us. That He takes on our sin and our shame. And He gives us His righteousness that we might be able to enter into His courts with thanksgiving and praise. The first thing that we saw was God appears. The second thing we see is God intervenes. In verses 7 to 12. Now we've spoken before, these verses before the end of chapter 2, God hears the cries of his people, the promises he made to his people. God sees the affliction of his people, that God knows his people. We also see the connection to that in this verse right here. Mainly that God notices all those things. A good pairing of the sermon last week of what is God doing when we cry in those desperate times. But here we see the absolute truth that God merely doesn't just hear, see, and know and make promises. He fulfills those promises. But here notice exactly what God says in verse 8. He knows all these things. He's heard the cry, but what does he do about it? God says in verse 8, that I have come down to deliver them. The reason why God appears to Moses this very day is God is stepping into creation to be able to save his people. That God steps into his creation that he might redeem his people. That God makes a way for his people to be able to worship him. He steps in to deliver his people. Again, notice that God is not changing who he is. He's still the God in which Moses hides his face. But God intervenes to save his people. But also notice what they're being saved from and what they're being saved to. It's not merely that God comes down to be able to save them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. But he brings them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, into a new land, a better land. This land is defined as good and broad, taking us back to that glorious promise or glorious truth that we find in the beginning of creation that God made this land and it was good. It was very good. Deuteronomy, we find out more about this land in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, land with brooks of water, fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity, it will, which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. These are greatly two different lands. 
the lands in which the Israelites currently dwell, working for Pharaoh, making bricks from the dirt. When they're in Egypt, when they're wandering in the wilderness, they'll complain and say, remember when we ate fish in Egypt that cost nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. Now They said it cost them nothing, but they were not free. They had no freedom. But even if you were to compare these two lists, they're not even comparable. They speak of leeks and onions. How can you compare them to vines and figs and pomegranates? So the Lord calls Moses and tells him that he is going to stand before Pharaoh and lead the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And when God calls uh, Isaiah, Isaiah is confronted with God's holiness. Isaiah is cleansed with his lips. He's an unclean person in the midst of unclean people. When God asks the question in Isaiah chapter 6, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah jumps up ecstatically. Here I am, send me. The Lord continues to be able to tell Isaiah that his words will fall on deaf ears and blind eyes. Or this is not what we see of Moses in chapters 3 and 4. Moses is a reluctant messenger. Chapters 3 and 4, Moses is reluctant to be able to go speak to Pharaoh. He has a series of five questions which if you've ever had anyone, you invite someone to something and they said, well, I can't. And they go off and they make up all these excuses why they can't go to this event. And you could have just said, I don't want to go. (laughs) This is what Moses is doing here. His first question is, who am I? The second question, who are you? What if they don't believe me? Fourth, I'm not eloquent. Fifth, Send someone else. Moses' first excuse is, who am I that I should be the one who talks to Pharaoh and delivers your people? But notice God's response. Again, I think we can learn a lot about this in our modern culture. Moses is asking about himself. He, He sees insecurities about himself. And he says, who am I that I would be able to go and stand before Pharaoh? And God doesn't turn around and say, oh, Moses, you're going to be great. Moses, you can do this. You ought to believe in yourself. Moses, don't worry about it. I've been preparing you for your whole life. That I put you in Pharaoh's house that you might be able to know how to speak to Pharaoh that I've prepared you in the leading in the wilderness that you might be able to lead my people. God doesn't turn to be able to build up Moses' self-esteem and says, I, you know, you can do this. Go on. Believe in yourself. Trust in yourself. But what does God do? God tells Moses, I will be with you. 
the exact thing that he had told Isaac. And Jacob, even as he left Egypt, Moses, you are a vessel. Pharaoh is not going to listen to you because of how you speak or what you say. Pharaoh is going to listen to you because of me. My great wonders, my great signs that I will perform through you is why my people will be let go. God will show forth his glory in all of creation as Moses is a conduit. And God tells Moses that he will see this in God's work. He does this by speaking directly to Moses, saying that God will be with him. God will show him and give him a sign, confirm that he has been sent. After it's all finished, God, uh, Moses will lead the people out of Egypt. But the sign that they will see is not merely they will be out of Egypt, not merely that Moses will worship God on this mountain, but they, the people of God, will serve God on this mountain. Now notice at the very beginning of this call, we'll we'll unpack this as we continue in chapters 3 and 4. But here God has told Moses to go, and God says, I will show you a sign at the very end. There's faith on Moses' part to be able to listen to God and his promises to be able to go and proclaim God's word. God says, I will show you a sign when the people are free and on this mountain. But first, you have to go to Pharaoh. You have to lead out my people. And then you will know because they will worship me on this mountain. Here, Moses needs to be able to trust God's word and obey God's word. You see, Moses is just like the Israelites. Moses is now in the wilderness, and he doesn't trust and obey God. He complains. He asks questions of God. But you notice here that God intervenes not merely just to be able to save his people from Egypt, to bring them into a promised land. He saves them to worship him. He saves them from slavery to service. They're called out to be able to worship God. They're not only saved, but saved to serve. And as we continue to be able to consider the book of Exodus, is not merely a nice story about Israelites, but it's the great story of the believer. That we are saved, not merely from our sin, but saved from our sin that we might be able to worship God. Be able to worship a holy God because we are holy because what Christ has done for us. We might serve God that we might be able to go and proclaim and show forth God's glories. But how opposite that is for what Christ did for us. Christ came down to serve 
that we might be saved. We're saved that we serve. But Christ came down to serve that he might save us. That unlike Moses, who is reluctant to go, Christ willingly came. Christ willingly served. And Christ was the victor. To be able to save us, redeem us. We'll see many similarities between Moses and Christ. And most of them make us long for Christ, the one who is not like Moses, to come down and save us, and he has. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for passages like this that we see even of the men of faith, such as Moses, that we see of their sinful hearts, and that we relate to them all the more when we see them in this state. Lord, help us to be able to seek to serve you, that we understand that we have been saved to serve, saved to be able to go forth and be able to share of your great glorious promises which you have revealed to us. Forgive us when we have thought too highly of ourselves. Lord, let us look to Christ, the one who humbled himself, even to the point of a servant, coming down to serve us, to be able to save us. Help us to be able to save the ones who are saved, to be able to serve you that we might be able to glorify and enjoy you forever. In Jesus Christ and his perfect and holy name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.